you know they have front observers and that's where you know you you put them you endanger them right yeah so yeah i think you know the best way to answer the question which is really important is you know you saw the video of the two high mars on the side of the road right even though they're uh olive drab it's pretty obvious what they are and so if you just want to shoot all the missiles on that for that day you have the launchers and you got your 12 rockets and that's it but let's say you want to shoot more than that you now have to have the two loaders right which are much bigger trucks, you know, with cranes and whatnot. And so now you have two giant trucks following the two very obvious HIMARS. If you want to shoot a third time that day, you need to have another set of loaders. And so the first question, of course, is how many loaders did Ukraine get? Well, that wasn't really super obvious, which is which is fine by me. But the reality is, you know, if you want to launch three times in a day, you need at least those six trucks plus, you know, two command trucks, plus, you know, the team for observing, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the the reality is it's going to be if they want to fire a lot in a day, it has to be in a tactical situation where they can have basically a, a crap ton of vehicles in one place. Otherwise, they're going to have to stay very light and only probably shoot one or two times a day. But I think it completely depends if it's on a really static front or like an Izium, you know, kind of where the strikes were happening, um, where there's a very heavy um, wood line, then that's probably better for Ukraine to shoot a lot because it's going to be difficult to find them in those woods and they can keep a lot of vehicles in there. And, you know, there's also triple sevens in there. There's also crabs in there. You know, there's a, a lot of combat power. So even if Ukraine were to, or sorry, even if Russia were able to find part of it, they probably wouldn't find all of it. And so you could probably safely launch a lot of missiles there. But if you're talking about somewhere further North, like uh, on the border of Belgorod, now you're in a situation that it's like slightly more exposed and they can see your vehicles and you probably don't want to put that many missiles in you know in one basket so to speak so it probably is not shooting as much but it really depends how many launches they have and how many vehicles they're going to bring with them so uh, uh and wh- wh- one more um, th- that's like a great answer re- really great one and you know you bring the perspective that i, I have never thought of and uh, uh, so it's uh what you're saying it's one or two as understood as the reality probably right on 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 is you access uh if it, uh, on something like is you access right well and so it, it actually might be more than we think in a good way because you know and maybe john can speak to this more um in terms of the military update but you know in, in about three or four days they hit you know ukraine hit about 16 or so fuel and ammo dumps all over the place in, in army headquarters and so that would suggest that, you know, if they have two two or four launchers that they're shooting almost four times a day, uh, which is which is pretty good, to say the least. So I think they may be shooting um, a decent amount. Again, you know, I'm not I, I, as we kind of pointed out they're they're doing just a two launcher crew to keep it small, which is pretty smart. But for all we know, they could be having, you know, two in the front shooting, two in the back reloading. And then they're actually churning out a lot of missions safely because they've split the uh, the platoon. But um, but you're right. It's it's kind of hard to tell, and I think that was why it was so smart for Ukraine to launch so many Tashkas when these things came to bear to really keep um, Russia guessing. Because you know, if their ammo dumps are blowing up beforehand, they would say, "Oh, you know, Ukraine slipped the Tashka through. That's uh, really too bad for us." But you know, the strikes were Tashka and HIMARS, so then they have to reevaluate. You know, one, what the hell is does Ukraine have over there? And they really don't get a good sense of what the picture is of the Ukrainian forces until it's way too late and these things are long gone. So, you know, um, that that's really good for Ukraine to be able to very quickly flex a lot of firepower 
And that's the biggest thing because as we talked about, you know, offline, the crabs are nice and all the self-propelled howitzers are nice, but there's no other equivalent weapon system that can just show up in 30 minutes, destroy literally thousands of Russians, then leave. You know, that's just a very unique, we'll say, capability that these things bring to bear and why they're so important and why Ukraine probably needs more if they want to get the, the mission done. Yeah, and CJ, Constantine, you brought up a great point. Um, CJ, conceivably, you know, I'm going to use like the Kivo blast as an example. These high marks could like do a strike mission from, let's say, Erpin, then Bucha, then up uh, far north, and then like skirt around and have pre-supply points and hit multiple different areas of the battlefield. And it would kind of curate this illusion almost of, far more volume of, of assets than they're actually there. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the great point. You know, Russia has to keep guessing because the reality is they can just put the pods anywhere they want, right? They could put the pods in the woods outside of Lishishank if they really wanted to, you know, have some guards on them to watch, make sure no civilians come up or obviously no Russians come up and then just shoot every 10 miles. You know, obviously they need the, the loader with them. That's the key piece of equipment, the crane, obviously, to actually get the rounds in because unlike, you know, the BM-21 or other smaller Russian rocket systems, I mean, it's it's a massive amount of weight. You can't just do that on your own, but you could pre-position all of this stuff. I mean, and they have 100 rocket pods at least. And so you could shoot every hour if you wanted to and from different positions if, if you have the proper planning, which, you know, Ukraine had at least a month to prepare. So I'm sure they probably plan some very tricky things that we don't even know about and won't know about till the end of the war, but you're exactly right. And one last point, CJ, um, maybe you could speak, you know, everyone's complaining about more high Mars and more volume of, of assets being transferred, but there really is an asymmetry here between the, the high Mars versus, you know, the counter Russian systems, which the Ukrainians are outnumbered in general, right? Or the, yeah, Ukrainians are outnumbered by the Russians in general, but there is this disproportionality here with, with the HIMARS to be able to do these types of capabilities and the rapid reloading. Can, can you speak to how this normalizes the ratio? You know, we've heard of, was it 10 to 1, 15 to 1, or whatever the numbers are. How would you think about how this kind of reduces that and that, that disproportionality at all? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, there is like, when it comes to artillery or any weapon system, javelin, whatever, you know, even with the best trained crew, you could only do so much damage on the enemy, right? Let's say you had a great artillery crew, you had pre-positioned ammo in a lot of spots. The reality is you're still, still really slow getting there, still sort of slow setting up. And then, you know, even if you want to shoot a lot, you're, you're not getting the same effects, right? Like to, to destroy an, an enemy um, company in the open, right? You need something on the order of 250 artillery shells, right? With six guns, that's going to take, you know, 10 to 20 minutes to do properly. And so the, the difference is, the limit almost doesn't exist for HIMARS. It's a limit of your imagination and the amount of ammo you have. And that is what is so remarkably, remarkably different about it. It's, it's basically the equivalent of giving, you know, uh, Ukraine a bunch of GPS guided bombs in their planes. You know, new areas are open to being struck. You know, uh, new timetables open for their own resupply. I mean, what we haven't really talked about in this space is the, kind of the breathing room that this is giving Ukrainians, you know, obviously they're still getting shelled a lot every day, but it's not as much as it was even a few days ago. You know, we're basically Russia's, you know, despite the fact they just took Severodonetsk or whatnot, they could only attack Lysyshanka on one angle because they're so badly bruised from the attack. And all of this stuff is just 
giving Ukrainians time so they don't have to give up as much space anymore. They don't have to retreat back or whatnot. They can hold their positions because the fire slow down ever so slightly. And that's just going to mean all the soldiers in the front not only have a morale boost, but also have, you know, quite tactically uh, more of an advantage than they did beforehand. So the effects are it's it's almost impossible to calculate the effects, but they're 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 almost all entirely good. Thanks, CJ. And Constantine, thanks for interrupting. That led to a great uh, you know tangent. Appreciate it. Um, one quick thing: I've been informed by a listener that um, the numbers uh, for the ammo um, and supply dump strikes are twenty four in total, uh, twenty four in Donetsk Oblast, and four in Luhansk Oblast. So. Uh, I'm, I, I want to say I saw a few reports that maybe one or two places in Kharkiv um, had also been hit, um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, I believe... CJ? Yeah, no, I just I just want to comment on that real quickly. So, you know, that's just over the course of a week, right? If that, the information is accurate, which if we look at the firm's data and the, and the reports and the videos, it seems to be pretty much on the money. You know, these sort of strikes were happening before, but it was a massive effort, right? Ukraine had to dedicate aircraft. They had to dedicate drones. They had to dedicate their very limited supply of Tachka. So it was something they could do before, but they, there was no way they were going to do 30 of them a week. And so this is, I mean, if you're a Russian staff planner right now, you must be spinning like crazy because you, I think they probably thought, you know, these weapons were going to have some impact, but to go from, you know, one or two deep strikes a week they had to deal with and account for, you know, having almost 30 a week, I mean, that's just insanity. It's, it's again, Russia can pour out a lot of people and a lot of ammo, but the problem is getting it to the front, to those warehouses and depots. They, you know, they had banked a lot, a lot on getting those ready and, because they were lacking that in, in the Kiev offensive. They didn't have these massive stores of ammo. So, they're, you know, the improvement on their end was to kind of start staging this forward, putting it in Ukraine and getting it so that they could get the ammo to their guys quickly. But basically, Ukraine's eradicating their capability, which in the end will force them to go back to these long convoys, which, as we saw before, was not very effective. Yeah, and I wanted to, uh, uh, one more thing that uh, people must understand that uh, why why this, uh, like, Ukraine even has this capability, you know, strikes those depots, uh, and they are, uh, they are really large, and they are cluttered, because uh, Russia is lobbing so many shells for for its advancement. Uh, for advance, it has to fire up to uh, 60,000 shells a day. So to keep those supplies, you cannot have, you know, um, your storage uh, ammunition depot uh, 200 miles away. Uh, you have to have it really close and it have to have really a lot of uh, ammunition in it. Uh, so that's why, you know, when it, it's easy to spot, how do you spot it? Well, obviously, you have uh, 100 trucks per day coming into it and 100 trucks a day coming out of it. Uh, you cannot distribute that because it, 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 it is so many uh, that you just have, you know, you wouldn't, the distribution would be a nightmare for you. Um, and that's why uh, it's it's so, you know, uh, this... Uh, HIMARS help is so important, and but there is another side that we must understand that only so many so so uh, so many systems have been given. It's not too much. So um, 
uh, right now, what you see is quite a limited use of those systems. But what's important, right, is that what we must understand that if Ukraine is given four systems, that means probably Ukraine can be given uh, 12 systems. Then Ukraine can, can be given a, uh, 50 systems. Uh, the, the decision has been given to give those systems, and that, that's what's important here. Uh, and I think that we should look look for that. And uh, with the Lysychansk, I would I would just uh, when people talking about Lysychansk right now, I would rather avoid this topic and not talk about this all because it's it it is uh, we have to keep the upset right now and just you know if you heard something if you know something just keep it down and like don't don't talk about it. Uh, it's gonna be two three days, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna hear official statements, and that's when we should uh, focus on that. That it is super important. Please, absolutely, Constantine. Thank you for that. And uh, for the for those in the in the space who don't know what OPSEC means, it means operational security. So we don't talk about things that could jeopardize the security um, of Ukrainian effort to expel the completely illegal and genocidal invasion by Russia of Ukraine. So um, if you know something, make sure that it is already open source, already out there, everybody already knows it before you um, put any information into the space. Um, to go to the queue, it's liberal and thank you very much liberal for your, um, for your understanding. And after that, it, I believe is, Luca, then Brian, then Paul. Um, and if I have that wrong, then we can duke it out later. But liberal, then Luca, then Paul is uh, Brian. Sorry, Brian. Our, that's liberal, Luca, Brian, liberal, please. Thank you, Heliana, for being so gracious. Thank you, John. I want to call you Johnny Rich because I think it's cooler. Um, I had a question. Um, I raised my hand. It was probably 15, 20 minutes ago. And that's cool because we have a lot of people that um, have questions or comments. Um, just to dovetail back to drones, maybe CJ or Constantine, uh, great contributors to the space. Thank you guys um, for being such a valuable asset. Um, Joseph Thomason was also up, and he's someone that um, I think is going to end up being a co-host at some point. Very um, intelligent, extemporaneous thinker, and um, yeah, look out for that guy. Um, but that said, so I had a question about drones, namely the uh, U.S. Switchblade 300. It was, it seemed like it was touted to be, you know, a game changer, and we haven't heard a lot. So my question to CJ or Constantine is, had the uh, Switchblade 300s been exhausted, and were they effective? Because I haven't seen a lot of uh, chatter or, or uh, video or articles on that not to say that they're not effective, but maybe they didn't have the impact on the war that we thought because we guarded them so so uh, close to the vest before we finally said, okay, we're going to send, you know, 600 switchblades to Ukraine. So that was my question. Uh, can, can, can I go and interrupt everyone? Um, and I think I'm going to cheat here. Um, uh, there is a Patrick Fox right now in, in the listeners. And uh, actually, I read some of his discussion related to that. And um, I think, uh, it, would it be okay to ask to bring him up? Uh, yes, because, please. Uh, I think he would have a lot of input on this. Uh, 
and uh, and in general in general i would i would i would appreciate cj uh you know covering this topic while we wait because i think he has uh, much more information i uh, from me i heard i did not hear good things i've heard from someone from the 73rd brigade that they were complaining that uh, those things are you know just not that effective as as advertised but that's it. I, I did not hear anything more than that, and I would not trust the person who even told me that. Yeah, so what you have to keep in mind with the switchblades, and uh, I'll end with what our, our, you know, our distinguished guest said earlier who has seen them in action, but you know, my personal experience is that you know, I use them in Afghanistan, right? These, these drones were designed for counterinsurgency, so they were designed to be a a very precise weapon that has very limited limited cloud damage, meaning you know you can use them in areas with civilians, you can use them in areas with important buildings, and they don't do any damage to them. This is not a, so. What does that mean? It, it means it's not doesn't have a lot of explosives. It doesn't you know necessarily kill a lot of people, but that's not what it's designed for. So, um, and to that end, in Afghanistan and other places, it was, it was extremely effective. So with its usage in Ukraine, you know we've seen a couple general officers and some sort of People that never actually use a system or, or knew much about it say it wasn't an effective choice. I would disagree. I had heard stories and also seen videos from Ukrainian Special Operations Forces using them quite effectively. And as our speaker said before, and our speaker before, of course, was Ryan O'Leary, who was in the U.S. Army. He uh, fought against ISIS with the Kurds in 2015, and he's been in Ukraine since the beginning of this war. And as he pointed out, you know, they're a little bit more complicated, and they also, you have to remember, have a TV UDL or VDL feed, so there's not another drone watching them. So there's no, there's no, there's never going to be any footage of these things being used unless you know Russia's taking the, the video. And what he had said was, you know, the average Ukrainian or average American wasn't very good with them, but in the hands of special operations, they were quite uh, extremely good. And so this is, you know, what I saw with my own eyes, and I and I trust, and it makes sense to me, right? A complicated system that it's not going to do a big boom. It's not going to look like it's that effective necessarily, unless it's in the trained hands of someone that's you know really good at using it. But you have to remember, in the hands of Ukrainian Special Operations Forces, you're not going to see the results of it, whether it's good or bad. And so if other ones were given to regular Ukrainian soldiers, you know, it probably didn't do them necessarily that good. But you know, we don't know, and we probably won't know for quite some time, just how effective they were. Because again, the way SOF operates is, you know, they're going after high value targets. They're going after, you know, individual people. They're going after individual vehicles. So not something that leaves a great, you know, splash or a lot of effects that you could see. But I would say, you know, for the purpose they were sent, they were very effective. But anyone in the media that was saying it would be a game changer, they were just misinformed on, on how it works, I think. And I agree. There was a lot of media coverage of it. But for those of us that have used it and seen it, we knew kind of what it would do. Uh, CJ, could I ask you a question on that regard, uh, just a brief follow-up? Sure. Uh, so as someone that's, I'm not sure how much, um, you know, you've had a chance to work with, you know, commercial, you know, off-the-shelf drones, but I believe the specific reports that I had in, re- in regard, that, that I saw in regard to this were that there were some Ukrainian, you know, units and personnel that, just, you know, that had access to them, but just didn't use them because, the, you know, the interface was, you know, less convenient than the, you know, interface and controls for, you know, a commercial drone. Would would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, the because a lot of commercial drones, like the Mavics and other ones that, that I've seen in Sloan, you know, they're, they're way more intuitive because they're designed for hobbyists. 
And so the, the controls are, are much more suited for someone that's doing casual flying, which ends up being a lot easier to use. You know, the, the switchblade was not designed like that. It was designed only to, to self-destruct. And so, you know, it's only flying for a limited amount of time. And then you either have to decide to basically, um, you know, blow up your target or have it safely land and, and not be used again. So, you know, it's just not as intuitive as a system. And if you think about it, right, let's say you have um, some tanks coming down the road at you, right? And you have a javelin and you have a switchblade, even a switchblade 600. If you're going to put like your soldiers lives at risk to like try something brand new and something that also too, if you miss it, it's not going to have any effect. Right. And it's going to take at least one person out of the fight, as opposed to if you, if you have a javelin or an N law, you're putting rounds down range, which are going to suppress the target at the very least and slow them down. So that's the kind of the worst case with like an anti-tank weapon or something else. Whereas if you just miss with a switchblade, you're literally doing nothing. So that's kind of why, it's only good in situations where you have like complete surprise or your, you know, your life isn't on the line, but that's just kind of how it was designed. Hey, CJ, if you can hear me, um, what's the difference between a, a switchblade 300 and a 600? So I only use the 300s. Those are kind of like the anti-personnel ones. They're much smaller and have a, a shorter loitering time. The 600s are the beefed up armor version that I think we're going to start getting pushed out to the army in the near future and, and they can i think fly about twice as far and they also have way more explosive on them so they're ideal for armor but as ryan o'leary pointed out today the people he saw were they were able to take out bmps and other armored vehicles with the 300s if you know where to hit them and it's uh the 600 is essentially a, a javelin right well it's it's i think it can go between 25 kilometers and above again that's no. just the uh it's uh, the unclassified I, range, so it's it's quite a significant range. I I mean not in terms of, of the range. I mean in in terms of the charge. I think it was it it, it carries the uh, the javelin warhead. That, that yeah, you're right, Constantin. The heat warhead. Yeah, the uh, switchblade three hundred. I correct me if I'm wrong on this, CJ, but I believe it's a for, equivalent to a forty uh, millimeter grenade round, and then the six hundred is a javelin warhead. The publicly listed numbers that's pulled it up for a 300 to 10 kilometers and 40 kilometers for a 600 in terms of range. That's the public number, anyways. Yeah, we'll we'll go with that. That sounds good to me. Constantine, you're correct. It has the same uh, profile as javelin. So thank you. And that's you know that's kind of the thing to think about it, right? Because you know javelin isn't necessarily a long distance weapon. So this you know 40 kilometer range is quite significant, but. You know, to a soldier on the front line that's fighting tanks all day, there's not necessarily a benefit to hitting a tank that's 40 kilometers away. I mean, it, it seems kind of obvious, but when you think about it, then would you rather shoot, you know, a couple javelins or a couple N-laws at the four or five tanks right in front of you, or do you try and spend, you know, an hour or so hunting a tank that's probably you'll never see in real life? So, again, it's I don't think it's a question of, you know, is the weapon effective? It's just, you know, what's the, the proper use of it for the, the time and place? Yeah, and I wanted uh, to add one more thing is that uh, uh, the quantity of those 600, I don't think it was disclosed, but uh, I don't think there are many available because I don't. I, I simply think that the United States never manufactured uh, large quantities, but that's just a guess because there there were no, were, was no need for that. And also, uh, when you talk about firing javelins, there are like tank hunting crews like we had Ryan here 
and there is not another point of defense is that when you don't have uh, tank hunting crew and you're defending your uh, platoon uh, uh, holding point, and that's totally different when you have you know tank ten two tanks charging at you, <laughs> firing a javelin is uh, you know it's uh, I I've heard this now from multiple people that uh, when tank is firing at your position. Even if you have, uh, even if you have javelin and anti-tank, uh, anti-tank weapons, uh, it's uh, incredibly hard psychologically. Uh, even if you have been in the combat before, even if you have been shot before at, um, even if you, you know, been under artillery fire, it's incredibly hard psychologically to go out and, you know, aim the javelin and shoot it back. It's not like you think that, okay, the tank is driving, I'm just going to pop up, aim my, ja- aim my javelin, wait those four and low, wait my, uh, those two to four seconds until it locks. And uh, if I'm lucky, of course, you know, if, if, you, if your hands are trembling, that can be much longer. And, uh, you know, if people have shot the sights, shot weapons with the sights, you, you know this factor when you... Uh, when I aim at something and it's not in your sight, you have to, you know, pull it around until you find it, and it it may take ex it may take extra couple of seconds as well. And uh, that tanker, you know, he probably knows uh, your approximate positions, and it's super super uh, scary. And uh, not many people can do that. So. Uh, when people talking about javelins, you must uh, and and laws, you must understand that it's it's not that easy to use that. Uh, and at the same time, when you drive in a tank, you're inside an armor. Uh, you of course there is a lot of fear, but uh, you're already on that mission, and uh, you have no way of going back usually. And that uh, gives you, and being inside an armor, it gives you somewhat, uh, how you say this, you know, uh, assurance, you know, uh, against someone who is being, you know, just one guy with a javelin. And uh, I'm sure that there are people who will tell much better stories and, and will tell, you know, how it actually worked, was. Uh, because right now I'm just, you know, telling uh, stories from people that I heard. Uh, that I watched interviews and a couple of people maybe I've spoken with uh, specifically about when they're being shot by the tank, but um, uh, it's it, it's just not that for not that straightforward. It's like a javelin against a tank. It's not like that. Trust me. All right, are we good on this right now? Ready to go on to the next person? Copy that. All right, thank you, uh, Luca. You are next, please. Uh, yeah, I was going to make a comment about HIMARS, but since you're talking about uh, um, the uh, the drone, what was the name of the drone? Sorry, I'm just, I'm just like... Uh, Switchblade. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's the loitering aspect, right? It's like, it feels it's more made for like 45 positions because... Uh, uh, the you know this the the speaker that uh, called before I forgot his name said that if you're like good you can you can drive it through a window of a house but uh, to Constantine point uh, the other good thing is that you can shoot it up and you have a video feed right so it's kind of like a 
suicidal Bayraktar type of Vashlover, of course. So you can let it stay there for 20 minutes. So you don't have to worry about the tank, um, you know, coming at you. So I think that's one use case. And the, But the more important one is to, you kind of know that there is a fortified position somewhere, but you don't have like the exact location and you cannot like root it out. So you send that thing and like it would be with a drone plus something else, but it's integrated. Anyways, that was not my point. That's just kind of like my understanding. And my point was, yeah, um, I was like reading about how how big of a difference the IMERS are making. You guys made the same point, but... Uh, George Tahakis, I don't know if you're following him. He's pretty good. Uh, uh, good guy. Uh, I think he was a surgeon or something, or major. Uh, anyways, he's saying that they're making a big difference, but we're just a, a point number one. He makes like five points, so I'd like to share them with you and then uh, kind of like start a discussion. He says that right now um, they're being successfully employed to point number one, take out CPs. I think that's common post and ammunition dumps. Then he said that once that is done, uh, Ukraine will move, or should move in his opinion, to target uh, uh, Russian uh, surface-to-air missile sites. And then that will uh, basically like weaken their air defenses so they can start to reintroduce Bayraktar uh, to those speci- specific uh, um, areas. And uh, with a combination of Bayraktars and HIMARS uh, still at high distance, um, you know, knock out more uh you know of the you know long range mlrs on the russian side so at that point russia will not have uh, as much depth to their uh, attack capabilities so now you can bring in uh, the artillery cruiser and that's point number 4 which effectively at that point you can start to target their position at a very high density um and so this is the prelude for what he says, obliterating uh, the Russian strong defensive point, uh, and uh, that will open up, um, you know, the strategic. That will give the strategic opening for Ukraine to counterattack on those positions in within four to six weeks. That's his point. Yeah. So I just wanted to share that and see what you guys think. Thank you. The only thing I'll add, you know, because. I mean, this is my job, so I think all these points are extremely important. You know, I've got the map up right now. You know, one of the things is people talk about how hard the counteroffensive is going to be, you know, and it's true. But at the same time, there's going to be another effect, right? In order to to create these deep lines to conduct offensive operations or even just deep lines to keep their troops fed, you know, fueled and ammoed up for fighting in Ukraine, you know, they need to physically be in Ukraine. And so what's going to happen as time goes on is they're going to get kind of crunched. They're going to get crunched in these lines, you know, on these roads going in and out of Russia. And as Ukraine takes more territory back, there'll be there'll be more of these Russian troops in a smaller area. So not only will there be less targets to hit, but the targets will be more valuable every time they get hit. So, you know, it's going to be very interesting moving forward when, you know, Ukraine's regained, you know, let's say half the land that they've lost so far and put in a situation where now, you know, more attacks on Russia are probably going to have to be necessary. And so... Between the Kursk strike we saw, other oil refineries we saw hit, I mean, I think it's people just have to be ready for what that means. And that means, you know, hitting targets in Russia, which, you know, of course, you know, Ukraine is just defending itself. So as soon as all the Russian soldiers leave their uh, territory, there's going to be no strikes on Russia. But, you know, we're not near that day right now. So there's just uh, going to be another effect of this. Um, and we'll see. I mean, 
you know, in order to hold what they have right now, Russia's going to have to put a lot more people on the ground to, to hold the line. Uh, because as, as many people have pointed out, the quality of these weapons and the amount of ammo that, you know, Ukraine is getting, because Constantine's right, you know, it was four HIMARS so far, and the four have promised, you know, I think next week, uh, the UK and German MLRS will start to show up. And, you know, these things are twice as powerful as HIMARS because, you know, they have twice the uh, ability to shoot. So if they are in two launcher sections, they now can fire 24 200-pound rockets, you know, at a, at a large distance. So this thing uh, hopefully will start to turn fast. And, you know, hopefully basically Russia's put in a situation where they either have to double down on the land they have right now or just retreat because they're not going to be given another option when they're getting rocketed every day. I mean, I wanted to add one more thing. Um, like, I guess, um, I guess, like, uh, Russia can then just say, screw it, we send in, uh, um, you know, tons of, like, cruise missiles or even strategic bombers, um, you know, if I'm thinking about a conventional reaction to that. And I think this is where, well, this has already happened, including the terror campaign that they started at the, at the mall. But um, even on like a military position, they can still do that because we know that they haven't employed their uh, strategic bombers to, to the fullest. Um, they would risk them already now, but I think this has to do with all the statements of providing Ukraine with NASAM and more uh, surface to air defenses because if then the Russians send in more airplanes to bomb those positions and Ukraine has already deployed, um, you know, some more advanced uh, surface-to-air defenses, now we're going to start to see bombers falling off the sky. And that's also, like, pretty painful for for Russia. So they they could be cornered here, you know, if this thing goes well. Yeah. Oh, uh, look no, I'm still here. Oh, okay, good. I, I just wasn't sure if you had more. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. You know, it's kind of interesting, though. I, it, there comes a point in time where you ask, like, well, why did Russia put more bombers up in the first place, right? Why didn't they, you know, exploit the initial shock and awe they had by just attacking, you know, somewhat surprisingly, but but not really. It, you, you know, there's only so much more they can do in, in that regard. You know, for the, in, in the case of the mall strike, you know, they're using – what could be a 60-year-old missile to, to do these kind of attacks, a missile that's good for anti-ship purposes, right, that comes in low and only kind of kills people in a large um, sort of lateral spray, which isn't good for hitting military targets. So I kind of ask myself, like, what even other options does Russia have? And I think they're kind of running out of ideas, um, which is not great for Ukrainian civilians, but is good for the Ukrainian military, fortunately enough, because – you know, if they could hit HIMARS and other key Ukrainian military assets, they would be. They just simply can't because, you know, the, the field craft Ukraine is employing, employing and, you know, just how hard they fought to this point. You know, they've created a situation now where they can actually use Western weapons much better than, say, if, you know, U.S. had given HIMARS in the first week or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's they're in a, they've held this far on their own to create the conditions for, for succeeding in the end. And, and, you know, that was all them that did that. So. I'm not really quite sure what Russia will do. You can bet that it's going to be more attacks on civilians. You can bet it's more wacky, nonsensical nuclear rhetoric. But, you know, as, ever, as long as everyone stays strong, you know, the war will continue to progress in this way with, um, you know, if it was only if they could do 30 base and weapon and ammo supply dump hits in one week with just two to four HIMARS, imagine what they could do with 12 in a month. It's incredible. I agree. Can we bring up Patrick Fox?
I think we're about to switch through co-hosts here. Sorry, we're we're talking to our friends on the European shift right now, seeing who's coming up next. So we're going through some technical stuff. Just stand no by brother. here. Yeah, we're good. We're good, brother. Just... Yeah, um, I, I, um, he didn't seem interested. So thanks, Con. So who's next? I believe, and um, uh, Brian, you are next. Uh, thank you. Um, question for CJ. So CJ, I'm going to put you in the headquarters of the Ukrainian general staff, and you just got the word that the uh, there's going to be some NASAMs that are going to be coming in. Um, and so my question to you is that, so if you're advising the general staff, where are you prioritizing the placement of the NASAMs? I mean, you've got choices, right? I mean, you, you, you can protect key cities. You can uh, potentially try to place them closer to lines of contact to try and interdict um, tactic, uh, close-in air support, ground support being flown by Russian tactical um, fighters uh, close to the line. So what if you woke up, how would you woke up in the general staff room? What are you what are you telling uh, the, um, the military leadership of Ukraine about how to deploy these NASAMs? Great question. You know, although I'm not air defense, you know, all, all I know in terms of artillery is targeting air defense. I would tell you I would put it in Odessa. And I would tell you that because, you know, one, Odessa's not going to be under any ground threat anytime soon, again, unless the conditions change dramatically. But also there's kind of this gap that exists between Kherson and Odessa in terms of, you know, the, um, the, the capabilities both sides possess. And by that, I mean, you know, Ukraine has been extremely effective in Kherson using their S-300s to interdict uh, Russian airplanes. We, we've seen reports that Russia just simply will not fly over Kherson. Uh, and, and we've also heard reports, too, that Ukraine is actually doing close air support for the counterattacks over there, which means they feel they must feel pretty comfortable. So Kherson and that access seems to be pretty much under control. Odessa, of course, you know, is a city and it's not going to move anywhere. And NASAMS is kind of a more of a point defense system because, you know, it's not inherently mobile, which does make it a target, of course, because it can't, you know, walk and leave very easily like an S-300 or something else can. But, you know, if Odessa could be protected from missiles, then that would free up all of these mobile launcher systems that are defending the city to go out to the front and be mobile and do what kind of they're supposed to be doing or what they were designed to do, which is to accompany, you know, areas in the field and to, to protect them and allow the Ukrainian Air Force to do what they're doing in Kherson, which is help the troops on the ground. So I would say probably Odessa. And, you know, the, the, the threat to Odessa from Russian missiles and Russian subs is going to pretty much, you know, always be there until the war ends. And so, you know, it's going to be an important target uh, for the Russians to keep trying to hit because it's one of the few places they can do that with impunity because, you know, there's no real countermeasure. They can't. Ukraine can't sink Russian submarines right now. They can sink Russian ships, but it's very difficult and very rare. But the one thing they can do is make sure no more missiles are having effects in Odessa. So that's probably what I would say. Do you have a different theory, Brian? No, I, I, uh, I'm I, deferring to the people who actually have military experience in here. So this is very no. helpful. Thank you. I mean, if you have a different thought or you, you maybe were considering something else, I'd be curious too. I mean, this thing is, well, you know, I'm, I'm not the expert on this. So, in, you know, I mean, 
I would like to see that there's no more, um, you know, attacks from some of these key cities, right? Um, you know, Kiev and uh, Lviv and some of these other places that, you know, that, that if you could eliminate that, you could, if you could eliminate that threat and or at least minimize that threat, that there would be some value uh, with that. But I, I get your point. Um, yeah, it, it, make, it makes total sense. I mean, what I want to try to do is limit the uh this close in air support this the tactical support that russia is flying with these fighters and and give these uh people on the ground these these um uh ukrainian defense forces on the ground a break from uh being hit like that yeah couldn't agree more thank you cj of course go pat uh heliana who is next uh next would be paul please Hey, CJ. Uh, so I just want to return back to those ammo dumps that have gotten hit 24 or so. What percent of the total ammo is in those repositories as opposed to deployed to the front lines? And I guess the question I'm really getting at is how long does that, does the front line, until the front line gets drained of artillery effectively, which we've already seen um, apparently to some degree in some areas. So, but, you know, given your experience, you know, if you're are you carrying 100 shells and then there's like a couple trucks in, you know, f- five miles back with 300 or 500 shells and then the ammo dump is really carrying like 50,000. How, how does that work? To- so I can only speak about the Western way of doing this. So but if you if you go on this journey with me real quick. So, you know, basically there was about, you know, between 20 and 30 supply dumps hit. These supply dumps are, you know, it's not just artillery ammunition. You know, there's probably some smaller arms ammunition. There's probably fuel dumps. It's probably a mixture, but, you know, sort of a brigade as we know it. So not just one PGG, but a couple of PGGs, something called the Brigade Support Area and the BSA. And in there, that's where they keep a majority of their ammo in, in Western armies is in the brigade level. And at that brigade level, they have normally about 72 hours of ammunition. So let's say, you know, in the Donbass where they're shooting 60,000 rounds a day, you know, there's probably, let's just say, between 20 and 30 brigades, you know, let's just say it's two to 3,000 rounds um, in each dump. And so they basically took out, you know, at least one or two days ammo for the entire front. So that doesn't mean that they won't shoot for 48 hours, but it means now, you know, the ammo that they have even more forward position, right, at the BTG level, so at the battalion level, which is enough for, you know, basically 12 to 24 hours is all they have until they can get it pushed through from, from that other level. So it's, it's somewhat complicated, but basically every level, you know, whether it be battalion, they have a day's worth of ammo. The brigade normally has two to three days of ammo. And then as you go to the division, they have like a week's worth of ammo. So by hitting these brigade and division targets, they kind of stop the cycle of ammo being pushed up. So the options are, hey, there's all this ammo in Belarus. We have to get this to the very front right now which is a very complicated and dangerous thing to do, but it also screws up those division and brigade areas that we're storing and uh, basically getting ammo ready for the next week's operation. And it kind of puts the whole plan upside down. Uh, so it's not a matter that they'll ever destroy, you know, all the ammo that's ever going to the front, but it's much more that they're going to disrupt the ability to continue up this, you know, 60,000 rounds a day number and really put it out of whack to a way that, is going to be quite effective, even if it's, you know, even if they're only getting shelled 30,000 times a day, which is still a hell of a lot of artillery shells to be to be facing, it's uh, it's a drastic reduction. And it's going to, you know, kind of create opportunities. But I don't, I have no clarity into, 
if these ammo supplies were like, you know, a week's worth or if they were held for division. I mean, they could be very well put there for operations in Dnipro in three months. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard to say. But in any case, it's ammo in Ukraine, which meant it was used is going to be used against Ukrainians. And that's why it's so important that it needs to be taken off the map. And it also actually kind of normalizes that ratio again, right? Indirect. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. <laughs> and funny enough, you know, at the beginning of the war, you know, these ammo dumps were key to capture. Or these supply trucks were key to capture because Ukraine was just, you know, taking that ammo and using it. But now we're in a situation where Ukraine is using almost, almost not entirely, but almost entirely all 155 and NATO ammo, which Russia simply can't use in any of their guns. And so now it's a situation where this ammo, which beforehand would have been very valuable to capture and not necessarily destroy, is completely worthless to the Ukrainians. And so it just uh, makes it all the better that they're destroying it. Right. Uh, next. All right. Consulting my list here. Uh, so, Brian, you were up. Paul, did you already talk? Yeah. Uh, he just dropped down the list here, I believe. All right. So then um, I believe liberal again. Sorry, I have to put it's dark here. Yeah, it's cool. Um, liberal again. Uh, yeah, that's not me. So <laughs> go to the next uh, speaker. It's cool. Joseph. No, it was Joseph. Sorry, I didn't even see you, Joseph. It's just no worries. Uh, hey, CJ. Yeah, so a couple questions for you. First off, um, everyone seems to pronounce this different, like even General Hodges. So I'm going to declare you the official authority. Is it Attackums, Atacams, ATTCMs? Or like... Yeah, so I think I think Axel is just screwing with me, which is why it started us all down this train in different pronunciations. So just briefly, you got MLRS, which is the American system. We have MRLs, which are the Soviet system. You have HIMARS, of course, and these things shoot guided, you know, MLRS, which we just call Gimlers. That's the smaller rockets. And the bigger one is Attackums. But, you know, Axel is, you know, since he's a way more multilingual than I am, can call it whatever he wants. But yeah, no, it's Attackums. Yeah, I think Portland uses like just the acronym itself, too, which is like even there's like three different ways we say this. Just I guess like just for the listening audience. No, and it's also because there's actually different acronyms and terminology between the different militaries. And of course, you know, they're they're all from different militaries there. But at least in the American one, it's attack. Okay, fair enough. So so my my actual question is, um, so you kind of have a we or I should say we have a broad understanding of like what equipment ukraine has been given in terms of artillery and so if we look at like artillery as a system right you've got mortar for close range you've got 105 millimeter for you know it's quick it's responsive but it's not as big you have 155 for the medium engagements and then you have high mars for longer range engagements um in terms of like a force structure balance um what do you think would be your choice or what do you think is maybe the bottleneck what what would you get more of if you were ukraine looking to expand their artillery in terms of you know they have self-propelled guns also um so yeah i guess uh, what what would if you had 800 million dollars to spend on some artillery right now cj and you know the force structure of the ukrainian military as it stands at least publicly what do you think they, they should focus on uh getting more of you know course, it, everything but that's a re- really good question and um my answer is i would kind of defer to what ryan was talking about earlier you know these sort of weapons, you, you very accurately laid out, like what kind of ranges they're ideal for, but it depends what kind of operation you're doing. So if you're just doing platoon or company operations, you can carry your mortars with you, which means, you know, that's kind of the most important thing to you, because that's what we call uh, the most responsive asset, right? You check with your commander, but you can shoot, you know, wherever you want to all the time. 
for artillery, you know, you need to kind of have a battalion there and battalion headquarters to sort of coordinate. Because at that point in time, you're shooting so far and you're not only shooting uh, into the enemy area, but you're also probably shooting over or towards where friendlies are. So if you don't have higher headquarters in form or are moving as a battalion, you, you could risk fratricide or anything else, especially since everyone's using the same damn vehicles, more or less. And then when you get to the higher tier systems like HIMARS, you have to consider all the same things, you know, like, are you shooting near friendlies? So that's that's why it's more of a division asset or a much higher level asset. Um, it's going to support, basically, you're not going to use it unless, it, you know, basically a general signs off on it because it's, it's going to be shooting so far. But as Constantine kind of mentioned, he, he didn't really get into it because it's kind of the bane of every fire supporter's existence and it's all the drones flying around. But the reality is it's a massive missile that in the case of attackums is pretty much flying into space. And so you, you know, it's very unlikely, but still possible. You could take down uh, friendly aircraft, friendly drones left and right when you send these things up. I mean, they take up a massive air corridor and the coordination required is really at the joint level. So normally before you fire any sort of MLRS, you, you have someone, you have an air defense component to make sure none of your guys are going to shoot it down. You have a naval component if you're near the sea to, to make sure you're not going to shoot it near any ships that are going to shoot it down. You have an air force component to make sure, one, you're not going to shoot down any planes, and two, you're going to not have any airplanes shoot it down because in Ukraine, their air force is responsible for shooting down a lot of ballistic missiles. So the amount of coordination and responsibility of, of firing a HIMARS is at such a high level that it really depends how Ukraine is operating. So as he pointed out, you know, they're, you know, a lot of the foreign legion guys and, and the sort of uh, soft elements are moving out in very small units. So that's why, you know, when he was talking about RPGs and mortars, that's what you'd want to give them. But if and when Ukraine is moving as a full brigade or more, that's when you kind of can kind of bring in these higher tier assets. It's not necessarily a question of like what overall is going to be most effective, but it depends at what level can Ukraine should, can coordinate. So all right is to say, they need everything, but when they do these massive counterattacks that are going to be very well, I mean, they have to be well orchestrated and well coordinated, that's when HIMARS can make their money because when you're planning like a division operation to clear out a whole city, you already have the Air Force, Navy, and Army components working together, and you can do that much more seamlessly. And uh, one more question, CJ. I don't know. I guess this this sort of counts as artillery, right? Uh, me and me and John were talking about that they made this wagon, and they put like a helicopter uh uh rocket pod on it and they they shot it uh are you familiar with that picture or no yeah they they put the unguided uh <laughs> helicopter rockets on it and used it sort of in an unguided capacity so, so cj if you were given that that chariot uh what i mean how, how would you how would you use something like that i, I don't know like uh you know, we talk about a lot of these sophisticated systems, but I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about something like that. Well, I mean, you're given an yeah. <laughs> so if you think about like uh, the employment of air to ground missiles, especially unguided ones, like the ones you just mentioned that are mainly on helicopters, you know, they're used in situations where you have sort of troops in the open in a very big area and, you know, sort of a machine gun or a cannon from an airplane isn't really going to do the job because there's trees or buildings there, et cetera. So, I mean, the ballistics involved, when you have a very light rocket like that that's unguided, I mean, we've been, militaries have been using rockets like this for literally thousands of years, you know, it, and there's a reason why they were abandoned for a long period of time. I mean, we had them in the Mexican-American War, and they were not really used after that. Germans used them a bit in World War II, but it's just such an unwieldy system. If I had to use it, I would probably use it against 
uh, sort of people in the open, that would be the best target because that's the only chance you're actually going to hit something is that there's a large quantity of people kind of clumped together. Otherwise, honestly, I would use it as deception fire, right? I would use it to try and draw out enemy counterfire. I would shoot and have other artillery or something in the in the wings waiting to see. And, you know, once the uh, <laughs> Russians or someone else tries to engage this very silly uh, weapon, I would then destroy them from there. And, you know, deception fires is also good, as we've seen with all the bridge crossing or the water crossings and sort of attacks going on. A lot of these areas in the front are not heavily populated with troops, uh, despite the numbers involved. There's large stretches where there's not many people. And so using that to kind of like hit an area where Russia might not, or in any other country might not be defending, they might have to then pull resources or troops to that area and you could exploit something else. But I, in terms of how to use it against in, in real life, it would, I would say it's probably pretty limited, but you know, if, if you need to, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, deception fire. That's I, I, I hadn't considered that CJ. That's a really uh, interesting point. Anyways, I'll hop down. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you very much, Joseph. I believe next up was uh, our Romanian friend, Daniel. Good morning, Daniel. I, I presume it is now morning in Romania. Good morning. Yes, it's seven o'clock in Romania. Um, two things I want to, to speak with you. First, uh, I was very, very, very impressed the the hit Russians took in uh, Kursk, and I wondered a bit what they receive there. Was a rocket? Was a bomb? And after that, I think a bit, and uh, I remember uh, two weeks ago, a lot of S300 systems was pushed from all the Kursk and Belgorod region to the Donbass. This means uh, open space for anything to go so far away. Uh, what I want to say, and I think is very, very important in, uh, in the context of criminal attack of yesterday um for me i remember daesh i don't know if our american friends remember this calling of the arabs isis when isis started a, a huge offensive in northern iraq they are focused on military targets kirkuk uh, attacking the peshmerga expansion to Syria. When this thing doesn't work and they start retreating because they are attacked by Shia, Iraqi, Americans, Peshmerga and IPG, they started the terrorist attacks in Europe. And for me, Russian Federation is not far away from Daesh. In fact, I think it is worse, much worse. Um, and these attacks on Ukraine, civilian targets, these terror attacks uh, reveal inability to attack strategic uh, military targets. If I am not military, but if I make a step away, I see in the Black Sea they don't have the initiative. Uh, the Donbass is a slugfest where they cannot push anymore. Kharkiv is blocked for weeks. All the northern Ukraine is free, so they why they change all the officers in the Belarusian army and they push, they push, they push a lot to try something. Uh, they attack with strategic bombers like Tupolev 
civilian targets using anti-ship missiles and add to that destroying the ammunition depots, I think Ukraine is in a very, very, very favorable uh, position. And I think Donbass will remain without ammunition for the front next week. And we'll see something similar with northern, uh, the Kiev suburbaria stop and retreat. And if I bet, I bet the push from Kherson will be slower than Zaporizhia. And military operation for Ukraine will be favorable until August. Uh, what I want from all my heart is mass surrendering. Is, in my opinion, the idea to capture a battalion of Russians will destroy all the morale of the Russian army and keep bombing Russia. Rostov on Don, Belgorod, Kursk, any big supply chain, any airport attack is welcome. Any refinery, any railway switch, anything like that. Bridges, because they feel they are not touched. And that's why uh, the Russian morale of the people is so great, because they don't feel the pain. They don't see what Ukrainians saw in Mariupol. We must give them a light Mariupol on military strikes, not on civilians, because we are not monsters like terrorist state Russia. But I'm very, very, very optimistic. Next two weeks, we'll have a big smile. It's a huge tragedy, the Russians attack civilian targets in Ukraine, but also is a very, very good thing because it looks they, they don't have the power to attack the military targets in Ukraine.